you probably have figured this out by now, that our, our memories are interesting things. When I was young, I could not remember to clean my room or take out the trash, but I could tell you the starting lineup for the, everybody in the 1968 World Series. And probably every team before and after that for a long time. And we've all been a part of that. And we've all, we all understand that sometimes the, the joy of memory and the difficulty of memory. There are things and everything, there are memories that each of us have that uh, bring joy and uh, good feelings to us. There are memories we have that bring pain and uh, hurt, maybe even despair to us. There are things that we forget that we wish we could remember. There are things that we remember we wish we could forget. We, we all live our lives in many ways based in memories. What's happened in the past that we remember affects how we live in the present. And how we live in the present has a lot to do with how our memories will guide us as we move into the future. Memories are significant to our lives, both forgetting and remembering. And Scripture has a lot to say about remembering. Some scholars tell us that if you wanted to sum up the Old Testament in one word, you could use the word remember. Because it's, it's mentioned so many times. God says to his people, remember, 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 remember who you are. Remember where you've been. Remember what you did. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done. Remember what I've promised. And over and over and over again throughout the history of God's people, they are continually told, remember, remember, remember. Psalm 70 is about remembering. For a long time, when I picked up a book to read, particularly in my uh, first few years of college, and they were, it was assigned reading, you know, my goal was to get to the end of the assigned reading as fast as possible, right? And uh, so I would invariably skip over those first sections that you get in the beginning of a book, typically. The foreword, the introduction, the preface. Those were insignificant. I just wanted to get the reading done, so I'd start with chapter 1, right? And I came to realize that you understand chapter 1 and following a whole lot better if you spend a little time reading the introductory words. If you read the foreword and the introduction, the preface, it helps set the context of what the author is going to say in the rest of the book. And I discovered that if I read those parts of the book, I understood the rest of the book so much better. The Psalms often give us introductory remarks. Now, there are many Psalms that don't. Some of them just start right in, verse 1. But there, and there, are, but there are many Psalms that give us a few words of introduction. Some of the introductions don't seem to make that much difference. This is just a Psalm. Or this is maybe a Psalm of David or a Psalm of Asaph. And there's some meaning to that. And then we get some Psalms that are specific about why this Psalm was written in the first place. And Psalm 70 is one of those psalms. And it begins in the New Living Translation for the choir director, a psalm of David asking God to remember him. Asking God to remember him. David talks about remembering, but he's now turned this whole idea on its head. And he's now said, this is not about us remembering God. It's about God remembering us. Now, that's not the first time that prayer has been prayed. When the Israelites are in Egypt, and often other times when they're in distress, they cry out, God, remember us. God, remember us. Remember us. 
And Exodus tells us that God looked at Israel in slavery and remembered them. Now, that doesn't mean that God all of a sudden went, Oh, no, I totally forgot about Israel being down in Egypt. Oh, they're going to kill me. I can't believe it. Like the guys did with the first time they took me hunting in the winters of Wisconsin and left me sitting on a stump for five hours without, while I froze to death. It was the last time I went hunting, too. But, you know, we, we do that. We forget things like that. That's not what this means. When we talk about remembering in the Scripture, it's more than just calling to mind. It's being active. What they're really saying is, God, come do something about what we're facing. Come rescue us. Come save us. Deliver us. And when it says that God remembered them, it is saying God acted. God did something. And David's prayer in this psalm, and he's emphatic about it three times. He talks about how quickly he wants God to come and help him. David says, God, remember me. Help me. Deliver me. The psalm gives us a brief introduction, but it doesn't tell us the context of what's going on in David's life as he writes this psalm. Some people suggest that that this psalm is written uh, as a response to David struggling with sin in his life and the guilt and the shame of that. And the reason they offer that as as a possible scenario is because Psalm 70 is almost verbatim the last five verses of Psalm 40. And Psalm 40 is about David wrestling with sin in his life. And this psalm concludes that. And that may well be the case. But when I read Psalm 70 alone, I don't get the feeling that David is so much struggling with sin that he's committed as sins that are being committed against him. He talks about the attack of his enemies. He talks about how they are wanting to take his life. It makes me think of a couple of, of... instances in David's life that we are aware of. One of them is, uh, is Saul. After David, David has been anointed king, but he's not yet king. Saul is still the king. And Saul is jealous of David. And he threatens David's life. And he sends troops after David, chasing him all over the hillsides. And there are some instances where David is really up against it. And perhaps it's in one of those moments that he pens this psalm. I wonder... If it's not a little bit later in David's life after he has become king and and his own son, Absalom, initiates a coup against him. And the coup is successful. David is driven from the palace, driven from Jerusalem, out with his officials, out in the wilderness. And it's, it's up and down for a little while as to what's going to happen. But eventually David regains the throne. And it makes me wonder if it's in one of those moments. When David is, is struggling, he pins the psalm. Either way, we understand, we understand what it's like to feel like our backs are against the wall. The situations may vary. The struggles may vary, but we understand feeling attacked feeling stressed, feeling weighed down, feeling as if everything is coming against us and we're not quite sure we're going to make it. But there is something in this context of David's life that's even beyond himself. Uh, David is the very representative of God's great messianic plan for redeeming the world. God has said, David, it is through your family 
It is through your name and through your, your life and your people, your children, that the Messiah will come. And for David's life to be threatened is not just for David to be threatened, but the very plan of God to be threatened. And all the people of Israel are, are, who, who see David as God's representative, and they've watched him, perhaps with Absalom, they've watched him have to run for safety. And they're discouraged, and they're wondering, God, what's happening? Are you, is anything going to come good of this? What, what are you going to do? Rescue us. And David says, God, help us. And I think about the people around the world. We pray for them many for years. We prayed for them every Sunday at the church. That quite frankly, in comparison to, to the kinds of opposition we face, is uh, almost unimaginable. To think of our brothers and sisters whose, whose very lives are threatened. Their livelihood is threatened. Every single day, simply because they call the name of Jesus. And I sometimes wonder, God, do you see what's happening here? In in certain countries of the world, is the church just going to disappear? Is it all just going to go under? And sometimes we may wonder that about the church here as well, maybe for different circumstances. It's in those moments that we cry out to God and we say, Lord, help us. Rescue us. When I, when I think about the, the scenario of, of the world particularly, but my own life also, my first prayer is usually, as I pray today, Lord, ease up the pressure. Push the enemies back. Make it easier for them. Defeat them. Give them room. Ease up things. And that's a very natural prayer to pray. It's a very common prayer to pray. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. In fact, that's what David prays. In verses 2 and 3, he says, he says, Lord, humiliate, shame those who want to kill me. Make people, those feel horrified at what they're doing to me. Now, David's prayer here is a little bit different than some of the prayers he prays about his enemies. Some of those prayers in the Psalms about his enemies make us just a little bit nervous, right? I mean, you, you want to, sometimes it, there are passages of Scripture that I think, you know what, we really can't read that in church because without explaining it. You know, dashing people on rocks and, and villages, you know, being crumbled by mountains and things. And, and it, it's the kind of thing that you, you have to take a few moments to explain. It's those passages of Scripture that some of our non-Christian friends may love to bring up to us and say, this is the kind of God you worship. Forgetting that who wants to worship a God that doesn't care about justice? Who wants to worship a God that doesn't care about about making things right? And there are lots of reasons behind those, but David doesn't pray one of those prayers here. He's not praying for his enemies to be destroyed. He's praying for his enemies to be humiliated, to be shamed, to stop at what they're doing and think about it and be horrified that they are actually opposing God. And I get the feeling that underneath that prayer is this sense of not just feeling humiliated, not just feeling ashamed, not just horrified at what they're doing, but because they are ashamed and horrified, they not only stop what they're doing, but they turn and say, maybe we ought to think about God in a way that we haven't thought about before. 
Because I'm convinced that's God's plan. It doesn't please God to have to punish anyone. Sometimes we, we, we may paint the image or other people may paint the image of a vindictive God. We do not worship a vindictive God. We worship a God who created every human being to be in relationship with him. And God will stop at nothing to, to try to bring people into relationship with him. Those who are for him and those who oppose him. He wants everyone to come to faith in him. And sometimes it is in shaming people that that happens. I get a sense of that in the Apostle Paul's life. He's threatening the church, persecuting the church. He's on his way to Damascus to terrorize more believers. And, and the God Jesus appears to him in a light and speaks to him. And, and I get the sense that Paul is overwhelmed with shame and guilt at what he's doing. And it transforms his life. And that's our prayer, that that would happen. Because that's the heart of the gospel. That people who are opposed to God will turn to God. And so Jesus prays on the cross, Father, forgive them. A.J. Swoboda, in one of his books, says, Jesus does get revenge on the people who crucify him. Jesus does get revenge. Our revenge is retaliation. Jesus' revenge is resurrection. And in that resurrection, he makes it possible for every person, those who nail him to the cross, those who watch in horror as he's nailed to the cross, those who walk by and couldn't care less that he's nailed to the cross, he offers every single person his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. Because that's the heart of who God is. And I don't know if that's exactly that what David is feeling as he prays this prayer. But on this side of the cross, that's our calling. That's God's desire, his plan, his, his design for all people. But David is concerned not just about his enemies, he's concerned about his friends. He's concerned about the people of Jerusalem who are left there and having to deal with if it's Absalom, having to deal with Absalom's rule. He's concerned about, about the greater sense of people around him who know that he is the chosen one of God and what's happening to him. And he prays to encourage them and he says, Lord, may you fill with joy all the people who seek you. And may all the people who love your salvation shout, God is great. May they see you and understand you. There's something in, in that prayer of loving God's salvation that I think speaks to the way in which God redeems and delivers. What we want God to do is to come in to the difficulties and use his might and power to crush everyone who's opposed to him. And there are times where God does things like that. But what we find when we read the Gospels is that the way of God's plan for redeeming the world and defeating his enemies is not through crushing them with his power, but by surrendering to them to a cross. It's through love. And when I think of that, I celebrate the fact that the way 
of the cross is the way of life. And the way of life is the way of the cross. And I celebrate the fact that Christ has done that until I remember that Jesus also says, if you want to be my disciple, you take up your own cross and you follow me. And the way of changing the world is not by God's people crushing the world. It is by God's people loving the world. And loving the way in which God has designed the world to be redeemed. And that will almost always, if not always, involve seeking him. There's no way we are going to love as God desires us to love if our hearts aren't seeking God. And so he says, those who seek God are filled with joy. And you notice he doesn't say those who find God are filled with joy. Those who seek God. There are all kinds of people through in the scriptures and through history who seek God and don't end up finding the end result that they are hoping for on this earth. Hebrews 11 is name after name after name of people. And it gets to the end of it and says all these people looked for the day and they didn't see it. They were seeking and seeking and seeking. And this is what they were hoping was going to happen, but it didn't in their lifetime. And sometimes we get wrapped up in we're seeking God, and, but our goal is really about finding what we want. Because we're all about the end point. We're all about success. We're all about accomplishment. And God is often more concerned about the journey, about the desire of our hearts to seek him. Now, Jesus says, if you seek, you find. I think what he means is, when you seek, you find that God is present. A truth that you probably missed when you weren't seeking him. A few years ago, we bought, a number of years ago, we bought a, uh, an Oldsmobile Forenza car. I'd never heard of the Forenza before. Uh, it was a nice little car. I, I, I'd never seen one. I'd never heard of it. But we, we bought one. And what was so fascinating is, as soon as we bought one, I started seeing forensics everywhere. Have you ever had that experience? And I don't think it's because everyone went, well, if Wes and Cindy are buying a forensic, we're going to buy one too, because that's what we follow their lead in everything that we do. It's just because... I'd never seen it before. My eyes weren't open to them. But now that I knew about them, it seems like every road I was on, there was another friend's and there was another one and another one. I'm going to the parking lot and parking. There's two of them right there. I never noticed them. I'd never paid attention to them before because my eyes weren't looking for them. And when we're seeking God... We don't seek God and then get to the place where we, we finally find him. When we seek God, our eyes are open to the fact that he has been there all along. But we are so self-absorbed. We're so enamored with what we want that we have missed him. It is in the seeking that our hearts are prepared, our eyes are open. And we realize God is with us, and no wonder we're filled with joy. No wonder we yell, God is great, and we celebrate his salvation. And I am convinced that at the heart of seeking is this last phrase that David, how David describes himself in verse 5. He says, I am poor and needy. I think in many ways that's the heart of what it means to seek God. To declare, 
I need God. And when David says, I'm poor and needy, when we say, I need God, it's not a a declaration of despair as if I need God and I wish I didn't. But it's actually a declaration of joy. I need God and I am so glad that I do. I don't think we always see it that way. I think we tend to see I need God as a last resort. As that point of despair. But it's not. I've been thinking a lot lately about creation, the creation story and, um, and the Garden of Eden. And especially those first few chapters of Genesis. And one of the things that has been coming to my mind as I think about that and as I've had some conversations with people who know a lot more about it than I do, that for a long time I kind of had this image in my head that Adam and Eve were perfect before they sinned. That their lives were perfect, that they were perfect, that there were absolutely no problems at all. Everything was perfect. But the more I ponder that, then my next thought would be, then why would they need God? Life is perfect. Everything is fine. And the truth of the matter is, they need God. And you see some glimpses of their imperfections. Not sin, but just their imperfections as human beings. One of those, as was pointed out to me this week, is that, that in the way in which they, Adam and Eve each describes what God said to them about what they do with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says to Adam... You can eat of any tree in the garden except don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve has not been created yet. And so, the only way Eve knows about that is if Adam tells her. When you come to chapter 3, and Eve is having this conversation with the serpent, she says, God said, you shall not touch the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But that's not what God said. And somewhere between Adam and Eve, what they heard God say was misunderstood. Either Adam didn't say it right to Eve, or Eve didn't hear it the way Adam said it, but there was some kind of miscommunication. I don't think intentional, but there was some kind of miscommunication. And you get the sense that they were already starting to worry about their ability to keep do what God wanted them to do. And perhaps the reason why they went from eating the fruit to touching the fruit is that maybe they have started creating a little bit of a a legalistic boundary around God's command. And they're thinking to themselves, I'm not sure we can keep from eating that fruit. So let's take a step back and let's build a fence here so that we not only don't, so that we don't touch the tree. And if we don't touch the tree, then obviously we could never eat the fruit. And so it's probably the first, it is the first time in Scripture where you begin to see some legalistic rules creeping in to the human psyche. But at the same time, how do you tend the garden if you can't touch the tree? I think what it says to me is that they always needed God. There were some, some imperfections in just being human beings, because if they're, if they're perfect, they're equal with God, and we know they're not. Some kind of, of imperfections, not sin, but some kind of imperfections as human beings that made it, made it necessary for them to need God, to survive, and to be who they were supposed to be. 
And maybe the difference between before they sinned and after is that before they sinned, they knew they needed God and they celebrated their need for God and they ran to God about that need. And after they sin, they are unwilling to acknowledge their need for God and they run away from God and end up losing the source of life and flourishing as God created for them. Needing God is not a character flaw. Needing God is not some form of spiritual immaturity. I probably didn't hear this correctly, but my impression growing up was that people who were holy, when we talked about holiness and being holy, the impression I got was these are people who are so spiritual, they don't really need God anymore. They have come so far spiritually that they say to God, look, go, you, you know, don't waste your time with me. I'm fine. Go help some other people. I'm doing great. But the holiest people I know are the people who live their lives with a moment-by-moment declaration of how much they need God. They recognize more than anyone else that their life in every way is in the hands of God, and nothing could be better. It is a declaration of trust, a declaration of, of our, our desire for God to say every day, moment by moment, Lord, we need you. And sometimes it is a cry of despair. Sometimes it does. It is a cry of feeling backed against the corner and having nowhere else to go. But even then... It's good. All it's saying is, God, we trust you. I trust you. I don't know how you're going to fix this situation. I don't know how you're going to respond to this situation. But I want you to know I need you, period. You get the feeling that that's kind of the difference between the people in the New Testament who follow Jesus and those who don't. The people who follow Jesus are continually saying, I need you, I need you. And the people who reject Jesus are the people who are saying, I don't need you. I don't need you. And it's hard, it's hard to sometimes to make that declaration. It's hard to see it when we're in the middle of the crisis. Because so often we're like David, Lord, you, I need your help now. We need your help now. And in fact, if you don't respond now, I'm not sure we're going to make it. And sometimes God does. Sometimes God doesn't. Sometimes God is silent. And I wonder if the silence is one more means of helping us to see ever more clearly how much we need him. And so the underlying current of this psalm, as you get to the end of it, David says, God... No matter what happens, no matter how you respond to my prayer, I am making this declaration. You are my helper and my savior. I trust you. I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you do what you have promised to do, and that's enough. I'm going to keep calling out to you. I'm going to keep praying for you to help me, but... But underneath all of that is this declaration, this assurance, this confidence that you are who you say you are and that's enough.
As I've been reading through this psalm, it has caused my mind to jump ahead a few hundred years to a story, to the story that we read from Mark's gospel a little bit ago. Jesus has been teaching all day about the kingdom and describing the kingdom, how it grows and how it gets established and and, and how it it, uh, continues to, to flourish in the world. And at the end of the day, Jesus and his disciples get into a boat to cross the the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is exhausted. And so he curls up in the, in the prow of the boat and falls fast asleep. And they get out in the middle of the lake, and the squall comes up. And it's one of those storms they didn't see coming. And the disciples are scared to death that the boat is going to capsize, and they're all going to drown. And finally, they run to Jesus, and I can see them shaking him. Jesus, don't you, don't you care that we're all going to drown here? And Jesus, wiping his sleep out of his eyes and yawning a bit as the storm rages, looks at them and looks at the storm and says, peace, be still. And the storm stops. And he says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Don't you have any faith? And I interpret that whole scenario as the disciples running to Jesus and saying, Jesus, remember us, help us. And Jesus saying, don't you believe that God is greater than his enemies? I suspect this is one of those moments like Herod killing the the babies, that the evil one is trying to to take Jesus' life. He's trying to, to stop God's plan for redeeming the world, but Jesus knows it is not going to happen. And that's why he can sleep confidently through a storm. And the disciples haven't quite figured that out yet, and that's why they're scared to death. But at the least, they run to Jesus. I don't think Jesus calms the storm because he's afraid of it, that it's going to take them under. He just can't talk to them until the storm is quiet. As we think about the things that come at us, and we think about the the presence of evil and and all of its ways in the world, do we believe that God is who he says he is? That God does what he promises to do, that he is greater than any enemy that may come up against him or us? And the end of it may not be exactly what we want, but the one thing is sure, we can trust him. This is a psalm about God remembering us. But when you boil it down, it really becomes a psalm about us remembering God. Remembering who God is. That He is good and powerful and trustworthy. And remembering that whatever He promises, He will do. And the question for each of us is, will we trust him? Will we trust him? Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. Thank you for the gift you've given us of needing you that connects us to you as life and the source of flourishing and all that you desire for us. We pray that you will give us grace 
to trust you this day and every day. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen.